The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, the term goy, um, the Hebrew word for, um, for Gentile or nation, uh, non-Jew. Uh, goyim would be nations or Gentiles. Um, so I came across another thing on Facebook. I guess I'm spending too much. I, I've heard David talk about social media, um, and hopefully he's okay with me using this information that I got off of Facebook. Um, but a friend of mine whose name is uh, Timothy King, and if you're anybody familiar with uh, Max King, he has a son named Timothy or Tim. Uh, this isn't him, but he is he is a preterist, and he's a wonderful man, uh, very knowledgeable uh, he posts some really good stuff on Facebook, so I feel somewhat justified for um, spending, I don't spend a lot of time on it. But he came up with this term, he coined this term, goy anudix. And I know that Berean Bible Church knows all about hermeneutics. But uh, he came up with this term of goy anudix, and this is a definition. The Gentile method of interpreting the Bible with total disregard for Hebrew history, culture, and language of the first century. I will do the very best that I can to avoid using this hermeneutic this morning, okay? Because I think that what y'all have been taught here is so important if we're going to properly understand uh, the, the, the scriptures and how God uh, actually was faithful to fulfill them. Okay, moving on. Um, I want to share just a few prophecies, promises that God made. I mean, the Bible, the Old Testament is full of promises, and if we were going to go out and list all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament, we would be here for days and days and days. So I've got three specific ones that I wanted to uh, just put before you today um, to kind of build a foundation for where I want to go if I ever get there um, with this with this lesson. Um, the first one, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun there a little bit. Uh, very familiar to everybody, I'm sure, Genesis 12, 3, uh, where God told Abram, he wasn't Abraham yet, he was Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think it's a, one of the most profound, most important scriptures in all the Bible. The, the, the foundational promise of what God's intention was for men. Okay, The focus is on Abram. What God was going to do, but it was not what God was going to do for Abram specifically, but what he was going to do through Abram so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. It wasn't a something where just Abram's descendants or Abraham's descendants would be the ones that were blessed. The blessing was to come through them to all the world to fulfill God's one purpose. Not two purposes, but one. Okay, so the next one uh, is just a few chapters later. And this is where uh, Abraham gets his new name. Um, God speaks to him. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Again, the focus is on Abraham, what God is going to do for or through Abraham. But the context is global. All nations. He's making him a father of many nations. So there's one purpose. He's using one bloodline, essentially, to bring about and fulfill that purpose. Okay, the next one is from Isaiah, chapter 49. I'm sure you're all very familiar with this. Um, 
talking about the servant, and I think we all understand that that servant is Jesus. He says, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So understand, when we read this particular passage, it's already understood that Israel has been separated out. Okay, They've already been cast out, not necessarily at the time that he wrote it, but the context of the prophecy is that Israel has been dispersed. And in fact, Israel has been torn from the house of David. So this is a promise of that restoration, of bringing them back. Okay, um, So that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's not enough. Not because that's not important, but that's not because that wasn't all of God's intention, all of God's purpose. He says, you are, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. All these people were going to come together. Israel and the nations were all going to come together as one. That is all who believe. Okay. But these are promises that uh, I think kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about. So, we get to the New Testament. And in my mind, the Old Testament is a book or a document of promises. Promises that God made to Israel. And the New Testament is a book or document documenting the fulfillment of those promises that he made to Israel. Okay, So here we begin, here's one uh, passage from Galatians where Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so he's talking about Jews here, or Israelites, to redeem them, to redeem those who were under the law. Again, Israelites, that we, and I think again here when he's talking about this we, he's talking about himself and other other Jews, other Israelites. Uh, It's not to exclude the Gentiles among them, but he's focusing on the promise and the intent of what Jesus, Jesus came and said. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. Okay? Um, he says that we might receive the adoption as son. Adoption was a promise that God had made to Israel. It doesn't mean that God can't extend that promise out to other people beyond Israel, but in order for him to be faithful, he needed to fulfill the promise that he made to Israel. And in so doing, uh, also fulfilled a promise that he made to bless all the families of the earth. Okay, so according to Matthew Henry, the proper understanding of that phrase and read up there, fullness of time of the time, is the time appointed of the Father. So we could say, when, but go back and read Galatians, but when the time appointed of the Father had come, and go on. So this was the time that God had appointed for his purposes to be accomplished, for his promises to be fulfilled in the first century. Okay, other promises that we find in, in the writing of Peter, and I think I heard somebody talking about this um, earlier this morning. You know, I'm old, I don't remember everything as clearly as I probably should, but I know I heard something about this somewhere. This statement that Peter made uh, in, his, in the very beginning of his, uh, his first epistle. Um, and rather than reading the whole thing, he says, he's talking about the things that the prophets had prophesied that they didn't understand themselves they didn't understand the, the matter 
what was, how it was going to be fulfilled. They didn't understand the manner of time or when it was going to be fulfilled. But they knew, looking forward, that it was, according to what Peter says, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, first century Christians to whom he was writing, they were ministering. So the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, Peter says, were pointing to that first century generation. Okay? This is probably old hat stuff for you guys, but we'll go through it anyway. Um, and then another passage where Peter is speaking, in this third chapter of, uh, of Acts, where he cites, uh, he reads from Deuteronomy, or he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where, where God promised Moses that he would uh, bring uh, another prophet like unto him, who was Jesus. Um, and Peter says, yes, in all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken have foretold these days, these first century days. So God was in the process of fulfilling the promises that he had made to Israel. He was being faithful to Israel. And, you know, I'll go back to Sam Frost again one more time. Sam made a, a comment, I think the same conference that, that uh, I spoke at and got to sing. He says, if Israel didn't get theirs, we don't get ours. So all of the benefits that we as non-Israelites, I, I mean, I could be wrong, maybe there is somebody in who, who is actually a physical descendant of Abraham, but I think probably unlikely. If God had not been faithful to Israel, then we wouldn't have the blessings that we do have. Okay? That's my opinion anyway. Hopefully you agree with that. Um, okay, one more. He says, for I could wish that I, that really here trying, what I'm trying to focus is on is, is God's and Paul's belief that God was going to be and was being faithful to Israel, that he hadn't cast them away. He hadn't turned his back on them, that he was being full faithful. You know, you go back to the Old Testament and there are a number of prophecies that talk about in Jeremiah chapter 30, I think it is. He, he, he talks about something about God, your people. Okay. But he, he goes on and he says, the remnant of Israel. And we find passages like that all throughout the Old Testament where it's clear that God, when he, we, we have to take all these things into consideration. When he talks about Israel being restored, is he talking about all of the physical, biological descendants of Israel, or is he talking about the remnant or the elect? You know, there's another term that comes up in the New Testament and in the Old. So here he says, um, I myself, I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. And you can, you can sense the passion that, that Paul has for his relatives. I mean, these people, this was his blood. These were people that he was actually family with, you know, uh, part of the, the same tribes. And, uh, and he, he wished that he could be accursed for them. Um, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So he makes it clear that all these things were promises that were made to Israel. And then he goes on in another verse a little while later in, uh, uh, in Romans chapter 11. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I mean, that was, a, that was an affront to Paul just to have people say, and they were saying that. Apparently the Gentiles, many of the Gentiles within the church at Rome were saying that God had cast off his people. Paul says, certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now that foreknew thing is a kind of a thing that we could probably spend a lot of time on. Um, 
but we won't. We don't have time. We'll move on to another passage a little further on in chapter 11. Um, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, uh, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with him when I take away their sins. Essentially the same promise that Peter had quoted back in Acts chapter 3, that God's new covenant, his purpose was to take away their sins, and that was how, it wasn't a matter of bringing him back into a land, which would, you know, in the Old Testament, it was kind of understood that as long as Israel was in the land, they were in good stead, they were in good standing uh, in covenant relationship with God. But when they were taken out of the land, they were separated. So the Jews, Israelites, were, were looking, and many of them thought that, well, the, the way that we would know that we're reconciled to God is if we're brought back into the land. But the New Testament makes it clear, and there's certainly Old Testament passages that point to that, that the reconciliation, the restoration of God's people would be based upon what Jesus would do in, what does he say? Taking away their sins. Okay, so he goes on, he says, considering the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And this kind of goes back to Philippians chapter 3, where the context again there is he's talking about the persecution that these people in Philippi were experiencing from Jews who, I mean, when you go through the New Testament, the persecution that these people received was primarily from Jews because the Jews were the, really the only ones that cared about the message, the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. Why would the Gentiles care? You know, why would the, the Roman officials care? They were just concerned about ruling this country and they weren't worried about the Jewish issues. The Jews were the ones that were the ones that rejected Christ. They were the ones that were persecuting the Christians who you know embraced Christ. Um, so, in, in this letter, he considers, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, much the same as he does in Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 11. Okay. Um, and then he says, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. Again, this is clearly focused on Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made his promises to Israel. He cannot take them away doesn't mean that all Israel, as far as physical descendants, is going to bless them, because Paul makes that claim. He says they're still looking for that, but the elect have already received it. They've already attained it. You know, So God's purpose was never to be completely universal. We talk about universalism, and I believe in universalism, and that, that the gospel has gone out to all people, of all nations, of all ethnic groups, whatever. It's not restricted to Israel, but it's only those who believe that Receive it and benefit from it. Okay. Anybody know what this is? Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be an olive tree. Okay, so olive tree is, a, is an image that Paul uses in chapter 11 of the book of Romans. Okay, it's very important um, part of that letter. And it's that, that, that particular section has caused a lot of controversy exactly what it means and you know, what is Paul trying to say there. And uh, I want to Spend as we, if we get that far and don't run out of time and get kicked out of here, uh, hopefully touch on a, a little bit of that, um, before we finish up here. But, um, in chapter 10 of the book of Romans, uh, Paul writes and he says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
And if the branch, if some branches are broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, are grafted in, I'm sorry, among them, and with them became partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So, obviously, the question is, what's the root? What does that represent? What are the branches? What do they represent? And hopefully, we'll, we'll get into that, what I believe it represents um, in just a minute. Okay. Um, so, I want to go back again to the Old Testament, uh, what I think is an important passage, important you know, time in the history of the nation of Israel. Um, at that time, when this took place, Israel was united together as one people, 12 tribes, under David and then under Solomon. But because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, God promised that he was going to tear Israel from, the 10 northern tribes were going to be torn away from the two southern tribes. Um, And this is a description of of what happened. Um, It says, The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David. Okay, I emphasize that because to me, tearing something from something is very similar from breaking off something from something. So when I read in Romans chapter 13 that, or chapter 10 that, um, that God tore some of the branches off of the, the, the olive tree, and I go back and I read this passage, it seems that this lines up. God tore them from the house of David. So that might give us some key as to what the root or the olive tree itself represents. Okay, but we'll go on. Um, rather than reading the whole passage, we'll move on. So we know in the history of Israel, based on what we know in the, or taught in the, the Old Testament, that there were actually two dispersions. Okay, the purple line represents the Assyrian uh, dispersion that was being discussed in that particular passage, where uh, the ten northern tribes—Israel, Samaria, a uh, number of different names they were called by—were taken off into captivity into to, to Assyria. Um, at Essentially, at the same time, immediately following the description of them being taken out of the land, we have a description of the Assyrians coming, bringing people into the land of Samaria and repopulating that area with people of their own. So the, the, the Israelites were replaced with Gentiles, essentially. And that's the, that's the context of, of some of Jesus' ministry, like when he goes into Galilee and uh, he meets up with these people um, who are not you know, ethnic Jews. They, they're probably a mixture uh, who blended together with the uh, some of the Israelites that were left behind and the Gentiles that had come there. Uh, also, the green line represents the Babylonian uh, captivity where Babylon came against Jerusalem and Judah and, and, and took those people back to Babylon. So that's a lot of the context of what we have when we come to the New Testament. Uh, some of the Jews have come back. One of the promises that God made to Israel after the Assyrians had dispersed them, or excuse me, after the um, uh, Babylonians had dispersed the people of Jerusalem, was he made a promise to Jeremiah that uh, he would bring them back after 70 years. And Daniel, to a large degree, especially the, really, the important part towards the end of the book, is about the fulfillment of that promise that God made to bring them back. Uh, you know, Daniel prayed, uh, the promise that God made, if you're faithful, then I will bring you back. Daniel prayed, he realized that they really hadn't been, but 
probably because of his faithfulness, God heard his prayer and Cyrus issued the decree that they, you know, some of them could go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Okay. So we've got people scattered all throughout the, um, that area, both west and east of that holy land, Jerusalem, you know, Palestine, whatever, uh, Israelites scattered, people who are descendants of Israel scattered all throughout that area. So we have a passage in, uh, in Amos that, uh, I think is very, very important. It says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. The sinful kingdom obviously is Israel. This type of terminology is used all throughout, uh, the prophets describing, you know, Israel as an unfaithful people. Um, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And he makes statements like that in various prophecies about how he's going to destroy them. But he'll always say, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He's going to leave a remnant. He always promised to leave a remnant. Those who were faithful would be left, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grains. grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall, be, shall fall to the ground. And I personally think that this imagery is, is carried over into Jesus' ministry in particular, where he talks about the wheat being separated from the shaft and how the wheat is going to be saved. God is not going to allow the grain, which would be, I think, the faithful ones of Israel, to fall to the ground, to be lost. He would keep them. He would save them. Um, it says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor comfort us. And again, many other Old Testament passages were where where Israel's response to the message of the prophet was, oh, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, we don't need to worry about that right now. And God really kind of got upset about that. Well, you know, he gave Ezekiel a prophecy for Israel. And Israel's response was, no, no, it's not going to happen right now. You know, and, and then they came to Ezekiel asking Ezekiel to go to the Lord and ask him something. And, and God's response to Ezekiel says, I'm not listening to them. They don't even believe what I say. Why would I give them an answer? So this is, you know, not an uncommon response we find with Israel. You know, it's easy to criticize Israel and come down on them, but I always stop for a minute and say, well, gee whiz, if, it, if I'd have been there at that time, would I have done anything different? Probably not. So um, try not to give them too hard a time. Okay, so following on from that, uh, I've got this here, Israel will be restored. That's the heading for that section in my uh, New Geneva Study Bible that uh, is obviously not part of the inspired text. But I just think it's interesting that the uh, the editors of the Bible realize that this passage deals with the restoration of Israel. And why is that important? Because this passage I'm getting ready to read is quoted in the book of Acts as in the process of being fulfilled. Okay, And it says, on that day, and we hear that phrase all throughout the Old Testament, there's a day, time, the appointed time of the Father is being pointed to in passage after passage after passage in the, in the Old Testament. And, and people want to Rightly divide the word. You know, they're going to split this this, only, this time, on that time, or this day, or this day. They're all different times. like eight different comings of the Lord or something, by, if you read some of the dispensational writings. You know, but that on that day, at that time, he's talking about the same thing. His one purpose to fulfill these promises. So on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild as it is at the days of old. Okay, and I've got highlighted here is that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, when you get to the New Testament, you see the uh, the way that James translated it when he when he you know, referenced it in, uh, in chapter fifteen. It, it sounds a little different, uh, but we can look at Edom and understand that 
that's a term in many cases that's used to, as a generic term for man, for mankind. Okay, um, And then he says, and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. I will bring that to captives of my people Israel. They will shall uh, build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine. From them they shall make their gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in the land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This last phrase, they shall no longer be pulled up. God's promising that at this time, when he does this, nobody's going to pull him away. You know John chapter 6, John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to Israelites and he says that no one can tear his sheep from his hands or from the Father's hands. And I, that to me, I think the same sense is, is there that God is promising that no one will pull them away from the land, the land being Christ. Okay, uh, in the Septuagint, just real quickly, in verse 12, this is how the Septuagint translates this, the remnant of men. So as we get to the New Testament, I think we'll see that that's more in keeping with how James uh, recorded or spoke it in, in Acts chapter 15. Um, all right, just in case there's any doubt, and I'm sure there's not in this room, I wanted to read a few passages that show that Israel had been scattered among the nations because it's very important. Okay, Hosea, I'm sure everybody's very familiar. Hosea, Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 11. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, notice that God is the one, he says, I cast them far off. And then he says, and though, although I have scattered them among the nations, he wasn't the one who physically took them off into captivity, but it was him. He was the one that was guiding things. He was the one that uh, was were providentially bringing the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever it was that came against Israel in judgment. They were acting as his servant. Like Nebuchadnezzar was called the servant of God because he was fulfilling God's purposes. Not because he wanted to fulfill God's purposes, but God was using him to fulfill his purposes. Okay, one more verse here uh, related to that. Zechariah, chapter 7, he said, Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so the Lord called out and would not listen. So that's similar to what happened with Ezekiel. The people wouldn't listen to Ezekiel's message, so God said he wasn't going to listen to them. That's what Zechariah is saying. Um, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations, which they had not known. Okay, so it's clear. God has scattered these people all throughout the nations. Okay, there are many prophecies given in the Old Testament, like we talked about earlier, but relatively few are specifically cited and expounded upon at any length in the New Testament. So we have to take the ones that are and and understand what they're saying. One like in uh, Amos chapter 11, the tabernacle of David being rebuilt, is one that's specifically cited and discussed in Acts chapter 15. And we have to learn from those so that we, and if we understand that all these other prophecies that are not mentioned specifically, I mean, if, if, if the New Testament writers had cited every single prophecy in the Old Testament and explained how it was being fulfilled, we think the Old Testament's long. Just think how long the New Testament would be. So we take the representative examples, the one that they specifically, the ones I think that they thought were key passages, and learn from them, understand from them, and and take that understanding back to Old Testament passages that aren't specifically addressed in the New Testament, 
and, and use our knowledge to better understand their fulfillment. Rather than doing like so many prophecy experts in our day, reading those Old Testament prophecies, First Peter, Peter made it very plain that the prophets themselves didn't understand how their prophecies would be fulfilled and when they would be fulfilled. But you've got prophecy experts out there today who are going back and reading these Old Testament prophecies and interpreting them for themselves, somehow thinking that they have a better understanding than first the Old Testament prophets had of their own prophecies, and then also that the New Testament writers had themselves. Okay? Discount what these, these people had to say and, and, you know, so many people will listen. They'll make these statements that this is happening, this is going to happen, this is how it's going to be full, it's being fulfilled right now. And over time it's apparent that that wasn't right. Then they'll write another book or they'll, you know, preach another sermon. And people keep hearing it, listening to it and believing and being led along and dragged along and, um, and spending their money buying books and books and books and going to conferences and conferences and conferences. Um, for somebody to come and tell them, well, you know, two years ago I said he was coming on this date, and let me explain to you why that didn't happen. And now, then, after I do that, I will tell you when he is, really is coming. You know, this time after time after time. And it, it, it angers me. I, I don't know how you feel about it, and maybe it shouldn't, but uh, it frustrates me. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's a better word than anger. Um, so, in Amos chapter 11, he says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Okay, so here's where it's cited in the New Testament. As the Council of Jerusalem has come together to discuss the main issue of what to do about the Gentiles. Peter's gone to Gentiles. Paul's gone. Paul and Silas have gone out to the Gentiles. What, first of all, I guess we got to decide for sure, is it okay for the Gentiles to come into the church? Okay, we say, okay, we accept that it's okay. What's going to be required of them? And so they spend a lot of time talking about that. But after... James, I mean, Peter and, and Paul have had a chance to talk a little bit about their experience. James stands up. He apparently you know, was the leader of this conference. And he says, and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, this is a quote from uh, Dwight Pentecost's book, The Things to Come, one of the it's about seven or eight hundred pages long. Uh, mostly quotes from other people. He does write a little bit himself. But it's, it's kind of one of the, the uh, primary texts for dispensational the- theology. And he's quoting actually John Wolvard here, who's one of the prominent uh, dispensational writers uh, back in the uh, 20th century. Uh, Wolvard has passed away uh, since then. But what he's essentially saying was that when Peter said, when, when James said, first... Let me go back to it. God at first visited the Gentiles. So what Pentecost is saying, what Volver is saying, is that God's plan, he's got two separate purposes. He's got a plan for the Gentiles, and he's got a plan for, the, for Israel. And he's going to go to the Gentiles first. That's his whole point. He's going to go to, his Gentile, to the Gentiles first, and then he's going to bless Israel later. So all you got to do is read the first 14 chapters of the book of Acts, and you'll see that God almost has been dealing exclusively with Israel from the very beginning. And then just in the latter verses, right up to verse 15, had he begun to reach out to the Gentiles. So that falsifies his whole premise, that there was a separate purpose. And here we have them gathering together to discuss, what are we going to do about Gentiles coming into the church? It's not, they're going to be separate 
but what's going to be expected of them. So it's obvious here that it's one body, it's one purpose, it's one God, it's one Lord. You know, it's one... I'm sorry. Um, and he goes on. He says, and with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it's written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. So that's different from, you know, I mean, similar, but it's different from what Amos, what, what, how it's recorded in the Old Testament. Um, but it's very important. And that's how James understands that prophecy, uh, to be what it, to be saying and how it's being fulfilled. Um, I've got a, a couple other translations down here that show that, that other New Testament translations use a similar language. And then he says, even all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from all, from eternity are all his works. So what's happening is this fulfillment of this prophecy is taking place right in their midst. And he's saying that God knew what he was doing. He knew his purposes from eternity. And so what's happening today is all according to God's providential workings. Okay, so here are some of those uh, translations that I mentioned all essentially saying the same thing, that all other people may seek the Lord and so forth and so on. So uh, what was taking place in the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David was done for the purpose so that all men could seek the Lord. Bring the Gentiles in. And who was amongst the Gentiles? That's something that hopefully we'll deal with shortly if y'all don't walk out the door on me. Um, the uh, idea that the Gentiles who were called by my name. You know, everybody's called by God's name, right? No. Read the, read the Old Testament and see who is identified as those who are called by God's name. Second Chronicles chapter 7 says, if my people who are called by my name, clearly this is in the context of Israel. Okay? Um, Moving on to Isaiah, he says, everyone who is called by my name. This passage clearly is dealing with Israel. We move on to Jeremiah. He says, yet you, O God, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Move on to Daniel. Um, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 63, we find a different perspective. Here Isaiah is talking about the unfaithfulness of Israel and he's comparing, he's comparing Israel to the other nations. He says, we have become like those over whom you never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. So people can say, oh, everybody's called by, oh, they're, they're all God's children but specifically in the Old Testament, the people that were called by the Lord's name was Israel. Other people were not. That's what Isaiah says here. Okay. Um, so we go back uh, to Romans chapter 10, and I've got all the personal, plural personal pronouns highlighted here. And I think it's very important that we all be very careful when reading passages like this to make sure that we understand when he says they or he or we or us or whatever, who specifically is he talking about? Because it can change as we go through this passage, and you'll see that it does. He says, how then will they, he's talking about Israel, call on him who they have not believed? And it's Israel. And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? Okay, talking about the people of Israel. Um, and how are they to preach, excuse me, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
Again, they to hear, that's Israel. And how are they to preach? Now he's changed they. He's talking about the ones who would preach the message, who would go out and preach the gospel. Um, unless they are sent. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then in verse 15 he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Again, going back, they is now Israel again. Um, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Uh, and he says, so faith comes from hearing the word. And that was something that was, uh, I think, covered in what, what Jeff read earlier this morning, how important hearing the word is. Um, and hearing through the word of God. But I ask, have they, Israel, not heard? And he says, indeed, they have. Four. Then he quotes from Psalm 19. Yeah, Psalm 19 was written a long time before this, you know, a thousand years or so before this. But Paul here is quoting it to support his contention that the gospel has been preached. And he says, their voices have gone out to the ends of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Pretty global to me. Okay, then he goes on, he keeps on going. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 21. I think this is a very important passage that Paul uses uh, in another place uh, later on in this letter. Um, then Isaiah is bold to say, I have not found, I have not, excuse me, I have been found, excuse me, by those who did not seek me. It's talking about the Gentiles. They were not seeking God, but they've been found by God because as the message was preached throughout the world, it went to them as well. They heard the message as well. While Paul and other people were going out preaching to the Jews, the message also got out to the Gentiles. He says, I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Clearly the Gentiles. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. So he's contrasting the Gentiles who believe versus the Israelites who failed to believe, who turned away from rejected Christ. Okay, so that brings in the Great Commission. The whole purpose, in my mind, of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples was so that that message would go out to all the inhabited world where the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, had been scattered. In order for him to make a new covenant with these people, they had to hear it. And they couldn't just stay in Jerusalem, in the Judea, and expect that all these people were going to hear about it. Now, Paul says that they have now heard. Oops, I went too far. Um, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but you can see that the um, it's color-coded, right? There's some key words there that I have emphasized. Um, that are that are apparently global terms. People today, when they read these passages, say, "Man, the gospel's got to go to the whole world." And there, you know, there's one group out there that's, that's counting the total number of undocumented or un uh, what's the word unreached people, groups of people. There's like three thousand groups of unreached people out there, and they're saying that well, Jesus can't come back until all these people have heard the gospel. And yet, you look at these passages, you see what Jesus said. And if you read them that way, it seems to indicate that's the truth. But then, you know, you, you realize what area that we're talking about here. The Roman Empire is what's in yellow. And then to the east of that, to the east of the Mediterranean, there's a, a large tract of land where the, the uh, dispersion of the, uh, the northern tribes have been dispersed into the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. So they're scattered out all through there, okay? But according to Paul, 
He all, we already quoted this passage from Romans, 18, uh, Romans 10, 8, verse 18. He says, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's saying that that's already happened. What Jesus told his disciples or his apostles to do has already happened. And you go down and read each and every one of these uh, verses from Paul's letters. He is using the exact same terms that Jesus used in sending his, his apostles and his disciples out to preach the world, word to all the world, the gospel of all the world. Did you get all those? <laughs> um, okay, so there's a verse that kind of sticking this in here, but I think this is so important for a... I always think it's such an important verse, and I don't hear people saying that much about it. But Paul's saying here in chapter 9, he's kind of, you know, beginning of this, these critical chapters of 9, 10, and 11, where he's dealing with this issue of Israel, Israel's unbelief, and the Gentiles, you know, being apart. He says, but it's not that the Word of God has taken no effect, He's trying to make the point, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Jews, a lot of Israelites have not believed, but it's not because God's word has taken none effect, okay? He says, for they are not all Israel. He's using Israel twice here, but it's clear that the two terms he's using are representative of different groups of people. So he's saying they're not all, I would say, my translation might be, they are not all true Israel who are physical descendants of Israel. Does that make sense? Y'all probably already been over that many, many times. But to me, it's such a key thing. When we get further along in this passage, and he says, and so all Israel shall be saved, and everybody wants to say, well, that means all the Israelites have got to come back and be saved. They've got to be gathered together in the, in the, in the, in the land and be saved. Why don't we just go back to chapter 9 and see that Paul seemed to make very clear that when he talked about Israel, the true Israel, he wasn't talking about all the physical descendants of Israel. And, you know, we have to carry these concepts from one place to another because does Paul have to repeat himself every time he makes a point? Hopefully we'll learn from what he says over here and we'll be able to apply it when he says something over here. Okay, Y'all tell me if I need to stop. Um, hmm? Okay, I'm sorry, running on kind of long here. Okay, so this passage in Deuteronomy 32 that, that uh, we referenced a little bit earlier is, is so critical, and it's such a key part of what Paul's ministry was all about, and what God's purpose was, how God was going to go about bringing about this restoration. He had all these people scattered throughout this large area, the Roman Empire, the, the Assyrian, the Babylonian Empire, the former, the Parthenian uh, uh, Empire, and there had to be some mechanism, some way that God was going to bring about this restoration, how he was going to reach these people, and how he was going to work it out so that they would turn back to him. A lot of these people, they rejected him. Okay, so he says, they have provoked me to jealousy. And again, if you read this whole passage in Deuteronomy 32, you know that he's talking about a time many generations in the future. I think it's verse 15. He's not talking about what was going to happen to Israel when they went across into the promised land in that generation. He was pointing to a time in pretty distant in the future. Okay, They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Again, pointing to the Gentiles. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. It's a critical passage that Paul uses in his, uh, his writing. So here we are in chapter 11. He says, Paul writing, he says, I say, 
Have they stumbled that they should fall? They is Israel. And he's, again, he's not talking about every single one of Israel because it's clear New Testament testimony that many of Israel, many Jews believe, but many did not. So he's saying they have stumbled, they should fall. Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the fall was the people turning away from Christ, denying that Jesus was Messiah. So these Jews, these Israelites who, who have rejected Christ as their Messiah, they're living their lives and they see you know, Gentiles amongst them who have heard this message and have believed that Jesus is Messiah. And these unbelieving Jews look at them and they say, wait, 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 they're receiving my promises. These were promises to me, to my people. And this jealousy starts developing inside them. And I, I, I think that it, 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 it worked into their hearts and their minds and, and it began to, you know, they, they still, no, this can't be. This isn't right. But it began to, have we all been through this? An idea comes into our mind and we can't get it out of our heads. We, we contemplate it, we contemplate it. And, and finally, it, 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 it just wells up in our heart to the point that we can't deny it. And I think this jealousy prompted many of the Jews, many of the Israelites, to reconsider their position because of their jealousy that they saw in God reaching out to other people and fulfilling his promises that he had made to Israel and including these other people. Okay, He says, salvation has come to the Gentiles through this falling away and being provoked uh, to jealousy. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, the fall of the Israelites has been riches because when the Israelites rejected, the Jews rejected the message, when Paul went to the synagogues and after preaching, some believed, but others didn't. And in many cases, Paul was driven out by the unbelieving Jews. And he would say, your blood be upon your hands. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Of course, the next place he went, first place he went was the synagogue. Okay, so But but that was the impetus for Paul. His, his commission by God was certainly to go to the Gentiles, but it was also... For Israel, and in his heart, Israel was number one. But he realized that his, you know, as, as the Israelites rejected him, and he went on to the Gentiles, that he was fulfilling God's purposes. He might not have understood exactly, but he seems to as we read through his. Okay, let me go on. Um, now, if their fall is riches of the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle. To the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So he knows that going preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is going to make some of his brethren, according to the flesh, jealous. And that hopefully that will stimulate them or instigate them to reconsider and ultimately to believe, come back. And, and I'm going to skip over the part about the, the, the olive tree. But, but those who are broken off and torn away. They were scattered among the Gentiles. And I believe that among those that Paul's talking about here, the Gentiles who heard the message were some. Paul couldn't go out in his ministry and go speak to Gentiles and look at a man and say, yeah, five or six hundred years ago, you were a descendant of Abraham. He couldn't tell who it was, but he knew based on God's providence or God's mission that he had given him, that some among all those Gentiles to whom he was sharing this gospel with were 
descendants of Israel. They were part of that which had been broken off, who had been torn from the house of David. And as that message went to them and they believed, they were brought back in. They were, gra- they were grafted back in. They were the natural branches grafted back into the olive tree. Amongst those Gentiles were also pagan Gentiles, heathen Gentiles, whatever you want to call them. They had no association, no biological connection with Abraham and his descendants. They were the wild olive tree branches that were grafted in to the olive tree. So you, in that olive tree, there were some branches that were still left. But there were others that had been torn from the house of David. And that's kind of why I think that maybe the, the tree itself is representative of the house of David. The root, I think, of the promises to Abraham that everything was based upon. So God tore some from the tree and scattered them all throughout the diaspora. When they heard the gospel and they came back, they were grafted back in as natural branches. And then the Gentiles who heard and believed were grafted back in as wild branches. And the whole tree was restored. And it was added to. It wasn't just the descendants of Israel. God had used this method. And Paul, when he gets to the end of chapter 11, cries out, you know, it's just, he's just stunned at how God was able to bring all this to pass. Restore Israel, the faithful of Israel, the remnant of Israel, the elect, but also to bring in the nations. The promise had been to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Can we close with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love, for Your mercy, and Your grace. We thank You, Lord, that You are a faithful God. We thank You that despite what some and many believe today, there are still things to come that You have not accomplished despite the fact that You promised that they would happen at the appointed time in the first century. We just pray to Your Lord that You would open eyes, that they might see, and that they might be blessed Come to understand what a wonderful thing it is to be, believe in the true faithfulness of God, that you have fulfilled your promises, that we are in your kingdom, that we are your children. And we just pray to your Lord that your hand would be upon each one of us as we depart from this place, as we go back to our homes, go out to eat throughout this coming week, that you would help us to be the light that the world needs for them to be drawn to you through what they see in us. We praise you and honor you. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.